This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Welcome to the Financial Standard Podcast. I'm your host and Managing Editor of FS Sustainability, Rachel allen We're in the final weeks before the kickoff of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26, which is anticipated to set in motion accelerated commitments by governments, businesses, and investors with the goal of keeping global warming to less than 1.5 degrees centigrade. Here to discuss the role of investors at COP26 and the impact of COP26 on capital markets is PwC Australia ESG Sustainability and Sustainable Finance Senior Manager, Linda Romanovska. Hi, Linda, and thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's just jump straight into it. Um, What should investors be looking out for in terms of new commitments at COP26? There are two key types of commitments and announcements expected from COP26 that will be of really high importance for investors. First of all, the updated state and non-state actor commitments on greenhouse gas emissions reductions and decarbonization pathways, but also, and that's important, announcements that will specifically target private capital mobilization for climate action. On the state commitment side, COP26 itself is a binding deadline for countries to submit new ramped up national greenhouse gas emissions reductions targets. And we know that more than 100 countries plus the EU, including all its member states, have already submitted their updated or new additional targets. Majority of them present an increased ambition level, progressively striving to align with the 1.5 degree target and net zero by mid-century transition. We also know that around 60 countries have already pledged net zero targets either in their law or policy documents, and many more around AD are planning to do the same. One example, for for example, is China, which has announced a net zero by 2060 target, but has not officially submitted it yet. And then there's a handful of countries who have resubmitted their targets, but have not increased their ambition, at least not yet. Australia currently is among those so far, but it remains to be seen whether that might change over the coming days. So what we are seeing is a global and almost universal move towards an increased climate change ambition in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets. But in addition to the national level commitments, they are strongly backed up by non-state actor commitments. And non-state actors is a diverse group, including thousands of cities, regions, businesses, investors, who have made their own greenhouse gas emissions reductions pledges. And often these non-state actor pledges exceed the bar that is set by their respective national policies, uh, and which pushes the global ambition level even higher. And the other type of key outcomes for investors that I mentioned, and uh, which we can expect, will result from the finance work stream at COP26, which explicitly calls for the mobilization of trillions of private finance to power the move to net zero greenhouse gas emissions globally by mid-century. The COP26 objective for finance is straightforward. It is to ensure that climate change is taken into account in every financial decision, both by private and public sector. 
This work stream will be carried out by a specially set up private finance hub, uh, which will be led by the special envoy Mark Carney. And it will focus on key main aspects. So the first aspect is risk management, ensuring that the financial sector can measure, understand, and manage their climate-related financial risks. Related to that, the second aspect is reporting, improving the quality, quantity, comparability, and the transparency of climate-related disclosures, also in close connection with the recommendations by TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. The third element is returns, helping investors identify the opportunities in the transition and uh, also report how their own portfolios are aligned with the transition. And lastly, uh, the last element in that work stream is mobilization, uh, seeking to increase private um, financial flows to emerging and developing economies, especially by connecting available capital with um, investable projects and encouraging new market structures as well. So all in all, we can expect announcements on moves towards mandatory disclosures, leading to full transparency around climate change risks and their management. Also new obligations for central banks and regulators in climate risk management on macro level. Initiatives to promote increased investment flows into net zero aligned or transitioning economic sectors and activities and also calls for increased commitments of financial market players to align their portfolios with the transition. Yeah, the Mark Carney briefing document um, was very clear in terms of laying out the, the pathway for what, what's hoped to be achieved um, at the actual conference. Uh, so it shouldn't be any surprise, I suppose, to people who do show up to Glasgow um, as to what the outcome, what the, what the stated outcome should be. Um, with that in mind, and I'm really interested in hearing a bit more about um, the way in which subnational and sub-state actors can be almost a force multiplier towards forcing greater commitments at the, at the national level. Um, and what does this mean for opportunities um, if there is sort of a force, force multiplier effect? Oh, yes, absolutely. The current and really fast-paced transition to net zero ambition and and overall more sustainable economic systems, we have to remember this um, in many cases extends beyond just climate to more overall um, sustainable uh, economic system. It definitely presents significant opportunities. Both the investors and the underlying investee companies have the agency to be key contributors to the solutions of these sustainability and climate change challenges. And they can often do so in close collaboration with each other. On the issuer side, there are opportunities related to the emerging high demand for innovations and technologies, low carbon products and services, everything that will be necessary for the required very rapid transition to fulfill these new commitments uh, by state and non-state actors. There are also opportunities in upgrading business models to reorganize the traditional ways of creating value towards more sustainable ones uh, and more sustainable in long term. Uh, and also importantly, there is an opportunity to tap into the rapidly growing pool of capital, which is currently seeking sustainable investment opportunities. And on the investor and asset manager side, the opportunities lie first and foremost in ensuring the resilience of their investments and reduce their exposure to climate-related shocks. The answer often uh, to that lies in the exponentially growing ESG and sustainable investing space, 
which not only allows investors to fulfill their own climate action pledges, but also allows this guarding against climate and other sustainability related risks. We certainly have seen that some of these ESG indexes display lower volatility and do outperform their non-ESG equivalents, for example, during the recent COVID-19 crisis. It's interesting as well. I mean, uh, you know, even beyond, as you say, climate change, there's also uh, the work that's being done with the Convention on Biological Diversity and the conference that was held in the first part of um, October and the way that uh, this will interact with net zero commitments on, in terms of climate change as well. Yes, absolutely. So we also have recently seen the launch of TNFD, which follows in the footsteps of TCFD. So we can certainly expect very similar developments in the area of natural capital and biodiversity as well. It'll be very interesting to see the way these two conventions interact with each other um, and how much more quickly um, countries, businesses, investors take up TNFD, having trodden the path of TCFD so far. So while the opportunity set seems very strong and ambitious, there's also significant risks uh, for countries that aren't uh, seen as meeting their commitments uh, under COP26. What are the risks specifically for Australia, um, particularly around things like the proposed policies like the carbon border adjustment mechanism? The carbon border adjustment mechanism is... Um coined by the EU. So uh, the European Union is uh, the leader currently in the space and is the furthest ahead with putting forward a very concrete proposal on carbon border adjustment mechanism, the so-called CBAM. But the developments are definitely not limited to Europe alone. Several countries have already indicated interest in setting up these uh, or similar mechanisms, such as Canada, Japan, UK, in US, a similar legislative proposal has likewise been tabled in Congress. So CBAM or similar mechanisms are on the G7, the G20 leaders agenda, as some of those countries with ambitious climate change and uh, action targets and domestic carbon price seek to reduce the disadvantage it might create for their producers, who would, uh, who would be in a disadvantaged competition situation with high emission importers who do not need to buy emissions allowances, carbon credits, or pay carbon tax at the place of origin. And also importantly, it is um, aimed at preventing carbon leakage, where highly emitting industries may move uh, to countries with less ambitious regulation. And of course, there is also an element to use it as an incentive for the countries that are seen as lagging to up their game on, on carbon pricing as well. Um, and this uh, certainly has been also indicated as potential point of discussion at COP26. Uh, the, in terms of risks, um, the risks to Australia may not be immediate, and at least in the case of the European Union's CBAM, it would directly affect only a few industries uh, initially, uh, some of which may be exporting to Europe, such as um, cement, iron, steel, aluminum, fertilizers. Uh, while these industries, they do not constitute a high share of Australian GDP, some of them, however, are highly export dependent and uh, may be affected, so they should be paying attention. However, down the line, um, there are likely to be flow effects um, on a broad range of Australian, especially raw material exports to producers uh, elsewhere, let's say in Asia, 
who in the case of operational CBAM would seek to reduce their carbon tax load when exporting to the EU or other jurisdictions with similar regulations. And therefore they may seek to import materials from less carbon intensive producers than the uh, coal powered industries in Australia, for example. It would be, uh, it would be interesting to see um, which country's primary resources um, stand to benefit if, for example, Australia does not take a strong um, net zero target to, to COP26 and the CBAM does go through, um, I'm, you know, whether or not it's Brazil or other countries that sort of step into the breach. It will really uh, depend on how these industries are powered. Uh, the energy mix of the country will really pay, uh, play a very significant role there. Are there, given that Australia is going ahead with, uh, with technology, not taxes, a gas-led uh, recovery, the, uh, the slogans and mottos that politicians are bringing to summarize policies in Australia, um, is there a real risk for, the, for Australia being out of step with the rest of the world um, when it comes to net zero commitments? Yes, and there's uh, not only the risk that's related to the world moving on, I would actually like to start with pointing out that climate change related risks are rapidly increasing on two fronts for financial market players globally, but, but also including in Australia. And firstly, it is the very real and already uh, felt physical climate change impacts which may significantly alter the risk profile of investments um, and require changes in how investment decisions are being made. In Australia, which is on average warming faster than the rest of the world, uh, and I mean on average, is one of the vulnerable sectors and is already experiencing uh, high level impacts uh, from these physical climate change risks. And, and when I say that, I mean, um, we're talking about increased risk of bushfires, droughts, floods, um, storms, coastal erosion, um, and everything that we have seen uh, over the last couple of years. And secondly, yes, every greenhouse gas emissions reduction pledge that we have been talking about um, in other jurisdictions come with a plethora of implementing policies, which also include rules and requirements for the private sector. Uh, and they increasingly target financial markets. European Union is probably a prime example of implementing a very comprehensive legislative framework on sustainable finance, which aims to mobilize private finance for climate action. The framework is already mandating compliance with a very comprehensive disclosure regime around invest investment portfolio composition, consideration of sustainability risks in investment decision-making on the investor and asset manager side, but also uh, on the alignment with sustainability criteria of economic activities on the issuer side. And these requirements already extend beyond Europe, including to Australian entities which operate in Europe. That, that is an example of a very direct impact of a transitional um, situation. And this impact, of course, comes with non-compliance risks, um, but there are also indirect impacts. For example, when those Australian entities are raising capital in Europe or other jurisdictions setting similar requirements, the investors coming from these regions will increasingly seek detailed information from their investees on their alignment with Paris Agreement, other climate objectives, and they will increasingly place their investments based on the alignment with transition path pathways to net zero by 2050, uh, also because of their own uh, decarbonization commitments. And so falling behind these developments, especially in those industries which are high emitters, 
comes with the risk of increased difficulties to attract capital. Because from investor perspective, these investments are increasingly risky, especially in the medium and long term, due to the transition and stranded asset risks, which may also conflict with their prudential duties. So therefore, it is essential that both companies and investors in highly emitting sectors plan for timely and orderly transitions to more long-term sustainable business models and portfolios. Because of these very real impacts, the market will and is already moving faster than the government has moved so far in Australia. The number of AS6200 companies with net zero targets has tripled over the last year. Now, more than half of the market capitalization is already covered by net zero commitments in a very diverse range of sectors. We are seeing energy, transport, retail, mining, just to name a few. Um, and the Australian investors are likewise moving ahead and are also already starting to decarbonize their portfolios. There has been a recent survey carried out by the investor group on climate change, which showed that over 40% of respondents, which are Australian and New Zealand investors, representing over 3 trillion uh, total in assets, they have already made portfolio-wide commitments to net zero emissions by 2050. And that includes superannuation funds, asset managers, sovereign wealth funds. And in the same survey, 70% uh, of these investors highlighted that the current policy uncertainty is a key barrier uh, to investment. So the government has a real opportunity here to address that. There's so many points I'd love to follow up on with you, Linda. I mean, to reinforce as well, Climate Works Australia came out with a report on Monday um, profiling 30 companies that had made net zero commitments, um, but finding that most of those commitments still weren't enough to uh, align the companies with a 1.5 degree uh, global warming outcome. And so therefore saying, okay, look, the work is that it that goes to that point about ratcheting up that you were making, making before that there are commitments that have been made, but commitments that need to be strengthened, specified, um, and further aligned towards a 1.5 degree outcome. Absolutely. That is the case also on country level, because a lot of the actual policies um, although they strive towards achieving the new commitments, they do not yet line up with the 1.5 degree target. We are currently rather tracking when we look at not at the pledges, but the actual underlying policies, we are tracking towards 2.53 degree warming still, unfortunately. But we can expect because we have these increased ambition targets now coming out of COP26, we can expect countries also uh, tightening the, the policies that will help achieve those targets. And especially also through setting intermediate targets for 2030 and 2040. And um, in many cases, the transition pathway the change that's necessary in the first decade is more rapid than the remaining transition uh, up to 2050. So we should really not under underestimate the extent and the speed of change that will be necessary to achieve these targets that we are now expecting in a couple of weeks. Mm. And then as well, I mean, it was an interesting point you just made as well about the fact that you know private commitments are exceeding government policy, because you could just as easily say that regulatory action um, is moving ahead of legislation or stated government policy as well. Um, Guy DeBell, the RBA Deputy Gover uh, Governor, made a speech last week um, at the CFA conference 
um, pointing out to uh, APRA's climate valuation assessment um, and, and, and saying, pointing to that as a, a systemic assessment of where the risks lie with uh, the, the top five banks of the country. Um, are there risks that are presented as well where there's sort of um, where regulators are going to be making commitments um, or finding assessments about systemic financial risk um, that, that come ahead of government policy? Yes, absolutely. That's one of the key discussion points also at, at COP26, the risk management, both at macro and micro level. And uh, regulators around the world are carrying out uh, risk assessments and stress testing and looking at how resilient the economies are towards climate change risks. And, and they are finding vulnerabilities. So there is certainly uh, increased regulation around how do we address those vulnerabilities and make sure that our economies are healthy also in the long term. And so as we sort of draw to the close of our time together, Linda, um, what are you keeping an eye on in terms of what might come from COP26? Um, obviously, um, it's hard to keep anxiety around uh, our future with climate, of climate change uh, from impeding everything, but are there things that you're looking forward to or that excite you as, uh, as exciting opportunities? Yes, I'm still looking forward to perhaps a few additional positive surprises in terms of country level commitments that might come in the in the coming days. And during COP26, some countries may be holding back until the last moment, until they they announce their uh, commitments. The but I will certainly be following the finance work stream. And one important and interesting aspect is the discussion whether the TCFD aligned reporting on climate change risks and opportunities and resilience towards climate change risks, whether that will be considered as something that should be made mandatory uh, in the near future, because that is one key discussion point, uh, and that's an exciting one. Mm, excellent. Well, Linda, thank you so much for sharing your insights um, and for what investors can expect coming out of COP26. Thanks for inviting me. It has been a pleasure having a chat with you. Take care. You've been listening to Linda Romanovska of PwC Australia. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Please remember you can subscribe to Financial Standard wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 